Larry walked into the office. We meet back here for prayer between the Sunday school and church. And he says, well, you know, the guy in the Sunday class was on the stuff you're going to be preaching about. I says, okay, how about that? We'll just get round two in this morning. But uh, I'm going to share on the power of unforgiveness. Now, this is, it's not going to be a negative message, I assure you that. But all through the Bible, forgiveness, you find forgiveness everywhere, don't you? You know, I love the way Psalm 32 starts. You know, blessed is the man whose transgressions have been forgiven and whom the Lord does not impute his iniquities against him. And that impute is kind of like an accounting term where the Lord doesn't add to the charges that he could add to our lives. And uh, all through the Old Testament, there's this idea of forgiveness, that God forgives, that God will hear his people when they cry out to him. And he will forgive their sins and he will heal their land. And that's something that's so early in the Bible. Forgiveness is one of the main themes. Um, but I want to talk in light of that. There's the opposite side of forgiveness, which is unforgiveness. And we're going to be going to John chapter 4, if you want to find that. Very familiar place. In reality, unforgiveness is this domination, this uh, hijacking of a person's soul. The usurpation of a person's life and keeping them bottled up. I don't think we realize the damage that is done to our emotions and to our lives through holding a grudge or an offense or refusing to let go of something that's happened to us that's affected us negatively and we've held on to it. Um, But let's just define forgiveness. What is forgiveness? How would you define forgiveness? Maybe the remission of our wrong, the, the cleansing of our sin. Um, the word is actually a word about letting go, to release, to uh, like a, an arrow release. When That's a command. To forgive was to release an arrow or a catapult in battle. It's to let it go. Let the boulder that's on your life to let it go. And God, when God forgives us, he removes all of that from us. So forgiveness is... Uh, Actually, the dismissal of charges and the punishment. Amen. In the judicial system, in the legal system, there's no such thing as forgiveness. There's only punishment and pardon. There is a way to say we're going to not undo what has happened. We're just going to no longer make a person pay. So there is room in the judicial system for mercy, and it's called a pardon. And there's a lot of people who want one of those. And it's a blessed day when they get that. But spiritually speaking, how does forgiveness work? This is where we turn to the Bible. This is our adequate, our source, our understanding of the power of forgiveness, but also the power and the problem of unforgiveness. Here's what unforgiveness is, if you want a definition. Unforgiveness is the demand for justice. It is the demand for justice, wanting or requiring someone to pay for what they've done. If not physically, emotionally, socially. I saw on the news that one of the people that was calling in bomb threats threats against Jewish sinners was actually mad at his Jewish girlfriend for breaking up. So he made those bomb threats in her name. 
I would think he has a little bit of unforgiveness going on there, don't you think? It's making someone, even if you just want to uh, put them down to the point that everybody else doesn't want to be around them. You create this social uh, leprosy on them, and a lot of young people do this. When they get mad at somebody, they want all their friends, they want to rally around allies around them, and they want to isolate the person that they have an issue so that everybody has an issue. Such a nice Christian principle, isn't it? It's too sad that sometimes some of those young people are in church youth groups. And they rally a cohort around them to make someone pay. And that is a, such a dangerous sentiment to let get rooted in your soul. The New Testament talks about this. It talks about unforgiveness. It talks about forgiveness. Now I want to just give you a little bit of overview of the four Gospels. There's four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Three of those Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because they follow a set pattern. And that pattern is pretty much uh, chronology. The chronology of Jesus. His, two of them record his birth, Matthew and Luke. Mark picks it up at his ministry, his baptism. But they track Jesus in a time-ordered way. And so they kind of meet the same pattern. John is not that pattern. John doesn't write that much like that. He starts with this um, defense of the deity of Jesus or this proclamation of the deity of Jesus. It's a theological premise that he puts out there. He gets to Jesus' baptism in chapter 2. But right after that, he gets into this conversation. John's, John's account of the life of Jesus is so different than the other three. And when you look in chapter 3, what do you find? You find this exchange that Jesus is having with one of the Jewish leaders named Nicodemus. And uh, he is, Nicodemus actually comes to him in the middle of the night or at nighttime. It's kind of like he tells us that. John says, Nicodemus at night comes to see Jesus. Here he is a ruler and a leader of the Jewish Leadership, and he maybe doesn't want anybody to know that he's having a conversation with this problematic person, Jesus. And so he comes, and he really, this is what Nicodemus is asking. Who are you? Who are you really? Because he says, nobody can do what you're doing except, you know, they're sent from God. But he's trying to figure out where does Jesus fit in the economy of God's work. And he just, the Lord just goes straight to the matter and he says, unless you're born again, you're not going to understand anything about this. Unless you have a transformational experience with God, you're not going to understand this. And so he has to take him through what that means. Now we know later on when Joseph of Arimathea uh, asked for the body of Jesus after he died on the cross, Nicodemus is his friend that helps prepare him for burial. And up to that point, they were probably closet believers because they were in leadership positions. And it's kind of like after Jesus died, they just, okay, we believe in him. We need to just come clean with our trust in him. But listen to this iconic verse, John three sixteen. You ever see the guy that's got the little play card in football games, John three sixteen? Bless him. Kind of like the guy in front of Bojangles. Lord bless him. But the most iconic verse, the most recognizable Bible verse is in that conversation. It's part of that conversation. 
When Jesus looks at him and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that that world through him might be saved. And he still wasn't finished. When you look at verse 18, it says, He who believes in him is not condemned. Now, here's the thing about unforgiveness. Unforgiveness operates within a condemning context. Because when people are battling unforgiveness, it's because they are condemning what's happened to them. Maybe they're not voicing it, but they see what happened and they don't like it. And they really want God to do something about it. Or something to be done about it because it's just not fair. And here the Lord is telling Nicodemus, he who believes in that son is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Isn't that a beautiful message? A message that people need to hear more today than ever because condemnation is everywhere. Can I I just appoint some of you here this morning to be condemning condemnation monitors. And you just kind of raise up antennas and what should we look for? We should look for people who criticize someone. You should not be able to spend very much time to find that. If you watch any news whatsoever, how long does it take before somebody's talking about someone in a negative context? In fact, that's all. That's news. This is negative context. Everything is, whatever they're talking about is bad for one and good for someone else. But they can't talk about good for someone without talking about bad about someone. And that's where condemnation gets rooted in. And how about within your social group? How long does it take someone in the social group to start talking negative about somebody else? Without their presence. But even with their presence, name-calling, making fun of them, making fun of what they're wearing, making fun of what they can or can't do, or just, just hammering them with negativity, hurting them. And when you look at the Gospels, the Gospels are four accounts of the life of Jesus that are not anywhere near exhaustive. In fact, John said, if there was an attempt to really record every day, like a journal of what Jesus did in those three and a half years of ministry, he said, I don't even know if the books of the world could contain. That is an awesome thing to think about, isn't it? That what we have is just a fraction, a small fraction. The people he healed, these are just, just selected few instances. The sermons, the parables, we just have a small fraction of that. And so when you think about what do they put in? What does Matthew put in? What does Mark put in? What does Luke put in? What does John? They have this array of information. They just start writing and make chapter after chapter, volume after volume, and the multi-volume life of Jesus. That's not what they do. Within a very small Context, they describe his ministry. So it's not coincidental following this chapter 3 with what you find in John 4, the woman at the well. 
We may get tired of hearing this story, but can you just bear with me one more time to look at it? It's fundamental. Here's a woman that's fundamental for us understanding forgiveness and unforgiveness. Because to refuse to allow unforgiveness any place in your heart can only work when you receive forgiveness. The reason why we can forgive other people is because, guess what? We're forgiven. He forgave us. And even the Lord's Prayer says, we pray, Lord, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. It works the same way. We receive forgiveness. We pray that we'll be able to forgive those who have done something to us, who have cost us something. And this book that Larry held up, it's all, they've got all kinds of copies of it at the table. I hope you've read some of it at all. My brother's read the whole book. Now his wife is reading it. So there's a line forming at his house to read that book. One of his grandsons that I witnessed to at the funeral, I gave him a book. He's struggling to find his direction. He's struggling. He's, he's, he's in a bad place. His family is, is shattered, is broken apart, and he's struggling. And, and he's, as far as I know, he's never made a commitment to the Lord. But I talked to him and I shared that it's not complicated. It's a matter of surrendering all of that to the Lord. He's hurting Hope beyond brokenness. Seven stories of God's grace stepping into broken lives, broken hearts, bringing healing, bringing hope, bringing recovery, and bringing forgiveness and an antidote for unforgiveness. And that's what we need. So we are our own worst enemies, aren't we? We are harder on ourselves than anybody else is. So we... Deal with this self-condemnation. Here's, here's how, the, I'm just going to refer to a couple of verses, but I'm just going to put it in this kind of context. Here's Jesus and his traveling band of ministerial students, you might say. And he and his disciples are going into Samaria. Not their normal route, but he's, he's leading them. And how many know that he probably wasn't normal for them in a lot of ways? So he leads them to this place and they stop at this well and uh, it's about noontime, and he sends the whole group to go get groceries. Now, I don't know how many groceries they were buying, but I don't think all 12 of them needed to carry it. But he sends them all in the town to go buy lunch. Leaves him solitary there at the well, and here comes a woman to draw water. And their conversation starts. I'm not going to go through all of that. But what happens there is amazing because Jesus is speaking to her about where her life is. She has no idea that her life is just minutes from being radically changed. These two people that meet Jesus in adjoining chapters couldn't be more different, could they? You got the ultra-righteous man in Nicodemus who thinks obeying the law is how you get to God. And you've got this woman who has had a catastrophic life, broken beyond our thinking. The woman, the person, the history, the lack of hope, and I want to say she had hope, but it was a distant hope. What a mess she was in. I'm going to give you three things about her in just a moment. But this story is about not blaming other people for your problems. 
because she did that. Here's, here's the thing, and, and it happens. We, we kind of apologize, but it's not an apology. When sometimes we say, well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Heard that? If I, if I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you did. And it's not if, and I don't think that's an apology. But this woman was not in need of apologizing to a bunch of people to get rid of the weight of her life. But here's where I want to take you. She's at the well and she reacts the same way because when Jesus tells her, you can track this, when Jesus tells her, call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you're right about that because you've had five and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she says, great, great statement. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Wow. (laughs) She got the reality. But look what she does. She goes immediately to this. But you Jews. She doesn't want to deal with her personal life. She wants to create a diversion to talk about the theological differences between what the Jews in Judea practice and what the Samaritans in Samaria practice. She immediately wanted to cast the issue, the issues that she had with him and with the people he represented. But it doesn't take long to see the discussion comes to a definable moment. And here's where I want to take you. It's verse 25 because in three words, we learn a lot about this woman. Before I think she ever has a complete transformation... Because she had a moment. She, a moment is coming. It's just right there. She's still a defensive person wanting to argue where should we worship. What kind of church service do you have? What kind of music do you have? We have traditional music. We have contemporary music. It's all about she wanted to discuss stuff that really was not going to change her life. And then these three words, she says, when he comes. When he comes, in verse 25, that is the key that unlocks her life. Because you learn a lot about her in those three words. Here's the three things I want to point out to you. First thing is this. As bad as her life was, she had a sensitivity to the things of God. She hadn't written off God, even though she probably had written off having a normal life. A good marriage, a good home where someone treated her right to just have peace in her life. She may have completely given up on that idea, but she had not completely given up on God. And there may be a lot of people living around this area, in this community, they're not, they're not living for God. It's not that they've given up on God, they've just kind of given up on life. And she has these, this critical moment where things begin to settle into her that is not to argue with Jesus over something. It becomes down to the Messiah. She had already talked about worshiping God and, and that worship was part of her life. Maybe part of her tradition. But then she gets to this point, she says, I know Messiah. This is the second thing. She had a trust in Messiah. Isn't it interesting? I know that Messiah, when he comes, she's already saying, I believe that somewhere 
in the future, someone's coming to help us all, including her. She was referring to this prophecy, this promise of the Old Testament, that someone was coming, the the son of David, the one who would come and redeem Israel and save Israel. She says, I know Messiah, when he comes, he will explain all things. That's the third thing. She knew that the things that she didn't have an answer for would come through Jesus. But she didn't know that he was Messiah. She just said, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And this is why I think the word when is important. She had hope, but her hope was way out there. It wasn't close by. It was way out there somewhere, way out there somewhere. Somewhere, maybe in my future, I'll see it. Maybe not, but somewhere there's one coming. The Messiah, the Christ. I think it has Christ in parenthesis because it's the same word. Mashiach is the word for anointed one in Hebrew. And Christos is the word in the Greek. The anointed one. The anointed one of God. The one promise from God who would come and redeem the world and save the world. So it's that second part. He will explain This to us, everything to us. And then here's the point. Jesus said, the one that's speaking to you am he. I'm the one. And at that point, if you're you're there, it doesn't record her saying anything else to Jesus, does it? If you're there. If you're there, the next thing you see is what? They arrive with lunch. Don't know if there's any more to the conversation here again. We just know that John is writing this and maybe selecting. Maybe there's more things said. Maybe she did say something. We don't know she said it. But what he did choose to write is that when we got there, when the disciples arrived, we were wondering, why is he talking to her? And there's no more conversation she has with him. She leaves her water jar and hurries into her town, into her village. And Jesus talks with them a little bit. He talks about them sowing and reaping, and they wanted him to eat, and he says, I've already ate. <laughs> I've already had a meal. It's a pretty good meal. Seeing this woman's life change, that's food enough for me. That's what he was telling us. He says, I've already ate. And all of a sudden, here she comes back with this entourage of people because she has went into her town, and this says something else about her. She has went into her town, and she tells people this. Come meet a man. <laughs> that what? That's told me everything I've done. Here's where I believe it shows that she's already been transformed. No, no matter what kind of anonymity she wanted, and she didn't want to bring up anything about her life, Because she is at the well in the middle of the day drawing water, which is not the time women usually went to the well to draw water. It's the worst time of the day. It's the hardest, hottest part of the day. They usually come in the morning, so that's why she is by herself. Whatever anonymity she wanted, she was released from that. It's almost like the people who, who gave their stories in that book was okay, had enough liberty to share where the Lord has brought them from. And she went in and she just laid it out. This Somebody has told me everything I've ever done. And they probably thought, wow, that's a lot. 
But she said this, and this is what captivated him. It's not like some prophet had told her about her life. She says, could this not be what? The Christ, the Messiah. Could this not be him? Just think about the magnitude of that question. Well, they were, they were curious, like, well, if this is Messiah, we don't want to miss out on meeting him. And they come, and they talk to him, and after they talk to him, this is amazing, they ask him to stay two days. Could you stay two more days? Could you, we just need to hear more about this. And Jesus accepts their invitation and stays two more days. I wished that John had recorded some of the conversation of the disciples. When, when he said, all right, we're staying two days here. Um, we're in Samaria. You know, we're in Samaria. We're not supposed to even be walking through Samaria. We're going to stay here two more days. I don't know if they had that conversation, but there was this effect. The people, when they left Jesus, said this to the woman. We believed what you said, but we no longer believe it just because you said it. We have heard with our own ears that this is the Savior of the world. We have, we have found out just from talking to him. So whatever is in this lady's life that was heaviness and unforgiveness was broken. She was no longer embarrassed about her life. She was more thankful about the new life she had. So, Pastor, how could she know that kind of forgiveness? You know, she wasn't waiting to have a bunch of apologies. This is kind of like people think forgiveness is, what, what is forgiveness? Is it an emotional release? And they're waiting for somebody to apologize to them for them to forgive them. Do you know it never says in the Bible that you are forgiven because you apologize to God? Never says to apologize to God. If you look at 1 John 1, 9, this is what it says. If we confess our sins, it doesn't even say if we ask for forgiveness. It's okay to ask for forgiveness. David did in Psalm 51. You know, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me of all the iniquity in my life. But it's... But the word says this, if we confess our sins, if we just own up to what we are and what we've done, which is sometimes one of the hardest things to do, maybe apologizing would be easier, but we says, yeah, I did that. I did that. I messed up. He says, if we just agree with God what we've done, if we just confess to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But here's the danger. Do not let unforgiveness take root in your soul. That when you've been hurt, you harbor it. You, you, you may want to get rid of it, but you have this negative feeling towards someone. And you want in some way, maybe not physical harm, but you just want in some way to them be in some measure of discomfort for what they did. That's unforgiveness. And that's the bait of Satan by John Bevere. 
Just this week, I had someone call me. And Brandon, you and the team can come up. Had someone call me that I, I can tell you I have not spoken to probably in 18 years, 18 to 20 years. I didn't recognize the name. I might even, not even recognize them if I saw them. But they called and left a message. I recognized the name because about 20 years ago, I was in a group here locally that our, our focus was how could we voice, how could we have a collective voice in the community as people who have a concern for social problems that we're having. I know why I was invited to the meeting because I was writing letters to the editor of the Tuscaloosa News. <laughs> and they said, we'd like for you to join in. I said, well, mine's just like an occasional letter. I'm not like making a life of this. But I went to a couple of meetings and it just didn't fit me. But someone from that meeting called, and I'm not going to go into the details of the call, but here's where I came away from someone so alienated from people a body of believers, that they had no one to help them as a couple in a dilemma that they were in. And they even said that they were using, they they were in ministry to help people who'd been hurt by the church. And then she was telling me about the time she was hurt. And I said, have you ever read The Bait of Satan? Yes. And I forgave them. <laughs> I forgave that church. I wondered if she really had. Maybe there's some of you this morning that's carrying a wound, a hurt. It might be a church. I had an opportunity to pray with her and, and talk to her husband. I don't hardly know them just from those couple of meetings that I was in with them. It was sad to hear where they're at now. Struggling to have anybody to reach out to. Because sometimes we get alienated by things that hurt us. And we pull back away from people. We don't want want to take a risk again of being close enough to someone to be transparent with them and to be honest with them. Are you carrying something like that? I know what it's like to carry that. I know what it's like to say I forgave someone or something until the Lord got my attention and says, no, you haven't. Because every time that particular person's name comes up, you you don't waste hardly a minute to tell them what happened. You still want people to think less of them. And he, he had me. I said, you're right. He says, so even when you have this enormous feeling that something wrong has happened to you and, and it wasn't right, can I say that? It just wasn't fair. It didn't change that. It just changed this. Did I choose to have a higher standard than God has? If he can forgive someone, 
how could I not? Unless I have a higher standard than him. Larry and I love Rosario Butterfield. She says just the opposite. When we approve of something that God disapproves of, then we make ourselves out to be more merciful than him. Powerful statement. But the flip side is, if we have such a high standard that we're going to continue to hold people to that standard, even when God has forgiven us, we're saying to him, we're more righteous than you are. And he had me. He had me. Brenda knows what that, the first two years of ministry, I told the Lord, I didn't sign up for this. If this is the norm, I'm out of here. I didn't call my dad with the first one, but I called him with the second one, and he was so compassionate. He said something like this, Well, Charles, you're not in Bible college anymore. This is not classroom. This is real life. So basically, suck it up and deal with it. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. But he, 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 he hammered me like I needed it. Like, snap out of it. What are you doing? You're going to hold this stuff? Bow with me, if you will. Lord, I pray because you know who's in this room that's carrying pain and disappointment in their lives. Betrayal. A wound. Something that causes them consternation. Even anger when they think about it. And there's no excuse, Lord. We we can't just excuse it. Not when the cross took care of our wrong. How can we hold people to their wrong when you don't hold us to ours? And I'm praying this morning for a release, Lord. For release of those who are here that are carrying something that's just so condemning in their life. you don't want them to carry it. You've given us through your own forgiveness the power to release our unforgiveness. To release people who've hurt us and put them in your hands, Lord, outside of our social justice, outside of our sense of what is right. And to trust you, Lord, to remove the the stigma and the enigma from our own souls. And not carry it with us any longer. Would you stand with me?